everyone, and welcome to Twin Takes, where we give you our takes on things we find interesting. I am Christian. And I'm Eric. And let's jump right into it. So, as most of you know, the election is mostly wrapped up at this point. While the Electoral College has not voted yet, and not all votes are necessarily counted yet, the Associated Press, which has in the past called the elections, has called the election for Joe Biden to be the president-elect. As it stands now, he has 290 electoral votes, and Donald Trump has 214. As far as the House goes, the Democrats have 215 seats, the Republicans have 196. There are still a few to be called, but it looks like the Democrats will hold the majority. And for the Senate, the Republicans have 48 seats, the Democrats have 46. There were two seats, independents, which are um, Bernie Sanders and Angus King from Maine, which are generally voting Democrat as they're in the Democratic caucus. Georgia has two runoff elections for their two Senate seats that will be happening in January. So that gives a chance for either the Republicans to hold the majority or the Democrats to get a 50, which would make it tied, which... Kamala Harris being the vice president-elect would be the tiebreaker. So it looks like we'll either have a, you know, Democratic uh, White House, Democratic House, and Republican Senate, or a Democratic trifecta, which is all three. One of the interesting things is voter turnout this year was very, very high. Joe Biden has the most votes for any president in history with 75 million and Donald Trump has the second most with 70 million um 70.9 so almost 71 which is kind of astounding 2016 was in the 60 million mark but yeah the country's a little divided right now as things are not entirely clear the Trump campaign has filed a few lawsuits that may or may not go anywhere but as it stands now we can pretty much assume that Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will be a new administration. Yeah, and on the the Trump administration and what they're doing, so they've taken to the courts in quite a few states to challenge some of the the ballots, the ballot counting, and maybe calling for some recounts. And I'm sure many people have heard of the multiple claims of election fraud, which most of them are either baseless claims or very misconstrued claims. And I just want to point out on Twitter, there's a thread by Isaac Saul, who's the founder of Tangle News. And he basically posted a thread and had people send claims of fraud his way. And he essentially researched each one in an attempt to either show that it's valid or to basically debunk it. And when he first posted this on November 5th, it when I shared it actually on Twitter, it was around 60, 60 tweets in the thread. Um, some of them, two tweets in a row, were on one topic, but most of them were one tweet per, per claim. And now, what did you say was that, Christian? 180 or something like that? Last I checked, it was 196 which today is Sunday, so that was this morning, so it might be a little more than that. But it was pretty impressive, actually. 
Yeah, so if you have any questions about any of these claims, I would suggest checking that out because he seems he seems to have done a very thorough job. He also links articles, videos, and stuff that basically led to the conclusions that he came to. So, yeah, I would definitely check that out if that interests you. Yeah, and most of it seemed to be just a general misunderstanding on the electoral process, which, to be fair, <laughs> for whatever reason, in this country is very confusing and convoluted. Like One of the things that comes to mind was there were people complaining that they weren't allowed in the room to look at the votes. It was Republicans alleging this, but what actually... And there was a video where one of the poll workers was blocking the windows, which looked a little suspicious, but it turns out that you had the equal number of Democratic and Republican watchers that were like pre-approved to be there to watch, which happens every year. Um, and it was people that were not necessarily approved and were trying to watch that should not have been watching because they didn't go through the process to be there. So it made it look like they were blocking Republicans out from seeing it. But in reality, you had the equal number of Democrats, Republicans, and you even had independents there. But that's not to say that there aren't some things that need to be checked out um, as far as the election and ballot counting goes. But most of this, even if there are recounts in some places, it probably will not change anything. Because as it stands now, Biden is 20 electoral college votes ahead of where he needs to be. Um, and Donald Trump is, what, 56 away. But one of the surprising things this cycle was Georgia flipped blue. Um, Georgia has been pretty red. Now people are calling it a battleground state, which it was an effort by Stacey Abrams. She did a big effort to register new voters and get young people and people of color out, uh, which has shown to be you know beneficial for the Democratic Party in this election. Yeah, and actually um, Texas was flipping back and forth. I think between like 40 and 70% of the the vote count when on the actual election night kept flipping back and forth, which is pretty interesting. A lot of people thought it was actually going to stay blue, um, but it ended up switching to red with, um, what's the total? Let me find it. Uh, 52.2 Donald Trump had and Joe Biden had 46.4. About 600,000 vote difference. Um, so it was close. Texas is usually solid red. Now it's sort of a battleground state because the Democrats tried hard to win Texas. Yeah, and I was actually pointing this out earlier. So, D.C. at 80% reporting was 93% Republican. Wyoming at 99% reporting was 70% Republican. And West Virginia at 99% reporting was 69% Republican. Every single other state the percentages for Democrat or Republican, whichever one, was between 49 and 65%, which is quite astounding considering everyone thought this was going to be a blowout <laughs> by Biden. And I mean, if you followed on election night, so. yeah, and if you followed on election night, you saw that it was very close in a lot of states for a long time. And a lot of states went back and forth. I mean, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin all flipped to democrat i think after election night i think on election night they were all red yeah it was pretty much you know friday saturday timeline that they started to flip and we kind of knew this was going to happen which 
you know, one of the problems I think we have is we expect results on things immediately, you know, like the night of, which was kind of a debacle that happened in the Iowa caucus for the Democratic presidential primary. But we knew that, you know, with the COVID-19 pandemic, there were going to be a lot of mail-in ballots that would be predominantly Democrat because, you know, unfortunately, the pandemic has been politicized like everything else. And you mostly had Democrats that were voting by mail because, I mean, Trump was actively urging his supporters to not vote by mail, to vote early, vote in person. And the Democrats were actively voting their supporters to vote by mail. So we kind of knew we were going to have what people were terming a red mirage on election night. And then, you know, as the mail-in ballots come in, things start to turn blue. Um, Because in in some places, it was like five to one Democrat to Republican votes in these mail-in ballots which was a big, big difference. But beyond that, something that's interesting to mention is, so people tend to attack the Electoral College because there's been a couple times where the candidate that has gotten the popular vote and not won the Electoral College, famously in 2016, Hillary Clinton, I think it was three or four more million votes she got than Donald Trump. Um, But of course, obviously he won the Electoral College. One of the things that makes that the case is that we in this country use a winner-take-all or first-past-the-post system where, you know, 50% plus one vote, um, you get all the electoral votes, as opposed to a proportional representation system, which many, many other um, advanced democracies have, where, say, Donald Trump gets 60% and Joe Biden got 40%, Donald Trump would get 60% of the electoral votes and Joe Biden would get 40% of the electoral votes, um, which seems to make more sense because, you know, you have California, which went something like 65% Democrat, 35% Republican. All those Republicans, it was like, what, 5 million people? Essentially, their votes didn't really count because it made no difference. I mean, obviously, you know, Trump got the votes and there's that number, but as far as the electoral college goes, their votes didn't really influence anything. And that goes for, you know, Democrats living in solid red states. Um, Kind of a weird aspect of our system that doesn't really lend itself to, you know, a nice process. But, you know, that's what we got. And, you know, generally, our electoral system has not been updated uh, really that much. We've had in a you know, a constitutional amendment to allow for the direct election of senators. But as far as the electoral process goes, it's run by the counties in the states, and the states have their own rules. Like Pennsylvania, one of the reasons we had that flip from blue, red to blue, sorry, red to blue after election night was because they were not allowed post state law to count their mail in ballots until after election night, whereas some states, we were able to count them, you know, weeks beforehand, which definitely saved them time. And, you know, Florida famously had, during the 2000 election, the whole Bush v. Gore fiasco, and they learned their lesson and they, you know, refined their election laws. But, you know, it's generally, the system has not been updated. And there are other countries that, you know, they know the results immediately the night of. They have like a federally uh, organized system, not by, you know, because essentially each county runs elections how they want to. Um, and I know you wanted to bring up something about Brazil. 
Yeah, actually, I was <clears throat> listening to Glenn Greenwald on Matt Taibbi and Katie Halper's Useful Idiots podcast, and he was talking about how in Brazil, where he lives, so first off, they're, for voting, if you're 18 and older, it's required, mandatory to vote. Um, and basically, on voting day, I'm pretty sure it's a holiday, everyone goes, it's it's throughout the entire day, and it ends at 6 p.m., and the the software that they use to collect all the votes and whatnot, it's so so use, useful and efficient that they find out the night of. And they have, I think, population of over 220 million, something like that. So obviously... So roughly comparable. Yeah, so... Because obviously not everyone is of voting age, but those who are roughly equals about what... Especially in this election, the amount of people in the U.S. who voted. But... Yeah, I mean, if you go on any any results page for the elections, you see like Alaska is only fifty six percent reporting. Um, Maryland's only eighty percent. New Jersey's only eighty percent. New York eighty four. So you still have a bunch of states that aren't even close to being done, which is kind of crazy considering it's November eighth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I I just thought it was interesting that you know. Other countries seem to have it, the situation handled a lot, a lot better than we do, and like what Christian was saying about the different states being in, being able to run it their own way, a lot of people were like, "Oh, well, Florida was able to figure out how to handle all the mail-in ballots. Why can't everyone else?" And well, the answer is like what we said: every state is completely different, and you know, if the federal government had a set way of counting votes, like what we talked about with, with mail-in ballots and absentee ballots where some states were required to count in-person votes first before they could even touch the mail-in ballots, which does not make any sense at all to me personally. But, yeah, I mean, you had the states who counted all, all of those beforehand and then did the the day of votes and then, boom, they had their results clean and quick. Um, yeah, so I think it would be beneficial if the federal government came up no matter what it would be but as long as it was some sort of set way of counting votes that each state followed so that we can actually have all of the states in at the same time yeah and there's no real reason why we can't at least start to move towards an electronic election like other countries do it you can easily have a paper trail to follow in case anything goes funky you know famously in the hearings with the tech companies the congressmen and senators obviously showed their ineptitude with grasping technology and how it works and what you can do with it. Um, so we're a little behind on that. But one of the other things I wanted to mention was we have this, you know, part of our 24-hour news cycle, and I mean, throwing social media into the mix in recent years, we have this tendency to expect news exactly when it happens and to know everything about anything that happens exactly as it's happening which is just not the case and i think we run into problems where you know a narrative starts to pop up after something happens because every news organization wants to get you know be the first one to report on it and then it turns out that you know the narrative wasn't exactly right 
this expectation of having immediate results. I mean, same thing happened in the Iowa caucuses for the Democratic presidential primary, which I mentioned earlier. Um, they had an app to count the caucus votes that was supposed to make it super efficient and get the vote out really quickly. I mean, it was a big bumbling mess because it was basically, it was kind of sketchy because the DNC, the Democratic Party of Iowa, made, they signed a contract with a company called Shadow Inc., which is kind of funny <laughs> name, a little ironic. Um, but the way these contracts tend to go is, you know, someone on the committee is friends with someone who runs the company, and it's not necessarily, you know, the company that's going to make the best app. It's just like, you know, connections. That's just how these kinds of things work. And it was just not great because you had Pete Buttigieg declare victory the night of, and then, you know, as votes started to get counted more, it was like, oh, Bernie Sanders is in the lead, and, you know, Warren's there, and it, it was just this whole mess, and it kind of, I mean, it's not necessarily that good for a campaign process to not be clear as to who won the election. You know, one of the interesting things about this um, these election results is, you know, one of the narratives from people on the left, the Democratic Party, is that all of Donald Trump's supporters are white supremacists, racist, homophobes, transphobes, fill in the blank, whatever. Um, you know, sweeping generalizations of any kind are generally not true. I mean, it's just a logical fallacy. Um, but one of the interesting things that happened was Donald Trump actually did better with, you know, minorities and people of color. He actually did better with, I, if I'm not wrong, every demographic group except white men. So he did better with white women. He doubled his African-American male vote, African-American female vote, Hispanic vote. Um, Native American vote also went up, which, you know, kind of points to the fact that maybe this narrative that all his supporters are white supremacists is not necessarily true. And, I mean, we've known this for a while. Yeah, just to clarify, that's based off of exit polls yes. that were done in person and they were also, they had called people who voted by mail. So obviously not everyone answered the phone, but this did take into account both in-person and absentee voting and mail-in voting. So it was really interesting to see that, you know, just completely unexpected. And I think that's kind of why you saw how everyone said, oh, it was going to be a landslide, like Trump doesn't stand a chance. All the pollsters predicted that Biden was going to get a big sweep, and that's not what happened. And, yeah, it's just, it's quite interesting. Yeah, and generally, um, the Democratic Party has gotten, if I'm not mistaken, around 90% of the African-American vote in most elections, of those that vote, which is kind of astounding for, you know, one group to vote that much in one particular direction, but there's obviously reasons for that. But, you know, back to the idea that everyone who voted for Trump is a white supremacist. Um, in 2016, you had this large number of people who had voted for Obama twice that voted for Donald Trump. Um, and this ties into what, you know, like, again, I mentioned the, the main narrative from the left is that his supporters are 
racist, homophobes, sexists fill the blank. But a lot of people who voted for him voted for him because of economic reasons. You know, the Obama administration, you know, they did some great things and they shattered some glass ceilings, to use that phrase. But, you know, his response to the housing crisis was to bail out the banks, you know, to foreclose on millions of Americans. Um, and the effects from that bailout, the they kind of, there's a study that looked at, you know, the compounding effects of the bailout and the tax cuts and stuff. And they estimate $27 trillion that went to, you know, Wall Street corporations, the 1% from that. And it was about couple years after the financial crisis in response to it that you had the Occupy movement, you know, the famous 1% Occupy Wall Street was essentially just pointing out the fact that the 1% has, I think it's now it's like three people, but it was the 1% have more wealth than the bottom 50% or 90%. It's just like astounding wealth inequality, which in any country, when you have increasing wealth inequality, it gets you know, it gets a little dangerous because that's how conflicts tend to arise. You know, famously, 1920s Germany, after World War One, they were in debt. Their economy was horrible. They had massive unemployment. They had hyperinflation where they were printing. So, like, their currency at the time was the mark. Um, and they had billion mark notes that they used as currency because that's how much their currency inflated. And... You know, the Nazis, among other things, like they decided to blame the Jews and other groups of people and say, it's their fault that you are poor and you don't have money and you're starving. And that kind of argument in times of economic stress like that tend to work. And I mean, it wasn't just in Germany. This has happened it happened in Yugoslavia. It's kind of getting that way in Brazil because their, you know, inequality is worse than ours. But... And, like, the whole, the idea that, you know, everyone who voted for Donald Trump loves his character and his rhetoric, it's not necessarily the case. You know, it was my opinion, and a lot of other people agree with this, was that it was essentially the Democrats that elected Donald Trump, because basically since the Clinton years, the Democratic Party has moved away from supporting the working class and like really pushing for economic reform, they've essentially become just another corporate party. And as we'll probably mention many times in this podcast, and I'm going to argue now, the two parties are essentially not that different from each other. You know, the common phrase is the duopoly uh, because they essentially really do, like their main interests are hard. Like they have their certain donor bases that are different and they fight over cultural issues but when it comes to corporate power um, and influence they're, they're pretty much in agreement on those things um, and it was Andrew Yang talked about this a lot in his campaign president that I mean part of this was because of NAFTA and I mean there were plenty of other reasons but um, you know we lost a lot of manufacturing jobs and that was mostly you know, white, rural Americans, males especially, um, that lost their jobs because they were shipped overseas because 
cheaper labor overseas, blah, blah, blah. And you now have this, I mean, it's, it is a crisis because for the first time in America's history, the life expectancy for white Americans is declining, which is not good in any case for any group of people. Um, but like the suicide rate for white males above the age of 55 has skyrocketed in the past decade or two, um, which is just astounding. And I mean, the, the opioid crisis was pretty much centered around that same demographic of poor rural white Americans that, you know, are now addicted on heroin and drug addiction is up. These are what many people refer to as deaths of despair. Um, and it's just not a good thing to have in any country. But that is what led a lot of people to vote for Donald Trump among, like, you know, I, I'm a Democrat, so I wasn't watching the Republican convention at the time, but I went back and watched it um, after the fact. And on the debate stage, Donald Trump was, you know, pointing out how people on stage with him, like Marco Rubio, Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz, those kinds of people, you know, your stereotypical career politicians had been making these promises for years, haven't really been doing anything. And that spoke to a lot of people. I mean, he famously pointed out the fact that the unemployment numbers are fake because, well, not fake, but they're, they do it in a way that is misleading. So, you know, they'll say the unemployment rate is, what, 5%. But if you're working an hour a week, you count as employed. If you're working three jobs to pay the rent, to put food on the table, you're just employed. If you stop looking for work, you are just no longer in the workforce. So you're not counted as being unemployed. Where another thing Andrew Yang brought up in his campaign, our workforce participation rate is around 67%, which is a lot lower than you know other advanced democracies and advanced economies, which is just not... It doesn't show up because they'll say, oh, 5% unemployment, but it doesn't point out the fact that, you know, millions of Americans have just stopped looking for work, so they're not included in those numbers. But he just spoke to the kind of resentment that, you know, obviously, tens of millions of Americans have towards the elite of this country that are honestly anything but elite in every sense of the word, um, that they go out here and they put these talking points and they make these promises and nothing really changes and people have had a continual decline in their standard of living and they know that um, and he spoke to that and while he wasn't he's not necessarily an outsider because i mean he was funding democratic campaigns he was a democrat he was close to bill clinton and hillary clinton before all this stuff um so he's kind of part of the swamp if i can use that term um so the idea that he was an outsider was kind of baloney, but people attach them to that idea because they're just fed up. And on that note, I just want to talk about a couple of tweets that I shared the other day that I thought were really interesting. So this was on November 5th. Andrew Yang tweeted, if 68, this is when votes are still getting counted. If 68 million people do something, it's vital that we understand it. And I thought this was... One, right on the point, and two, very important for someone on the left and someone specifically part of the Democratic establishment um, to point out because, I mean, to this day, there's not anyone else really 
that has said that. And I think, like I said, that, that's exactly that's exactly right. Like if half the country voted for Donald Trump, we kind of need to instead of assuming we we know why, we need to ask why and figure out why because you know you you kind of need to understand how your country thinks in order to to get anything done. Um, and kind of in a similar vein, a uh, tweet by Thomas Chatterton Williams, a uh, great writer, he said, it, is sim- it simply won't do to write off half or more of the country as racist. And that was supposed to have been the lesson after 2016. Which, I mean, again, that's exactly right. Like, after 2016, I mean, he won. And people at that time, the media especially, were trying to smear him as, you know, white supremacist and white supremacist and whatnot. And like you, like everyone knows Trump's flaws. Like he's narcissistic. He's he's immature. Rash. He says some racist things. Yeah, like he's he's very in your face about being improper in almost every single way. <laughs> um, but I mean, he's a character. He he's a reality TV guy. He, like he. He's a personality, like that's what he is. Yeah. I mean, he he puts on a show. If you watch his rallies, it's less a political rally and more him just doing stand up. You know, owning the libtards, which appeals to people. Yeah, this is, yeah, this is something I. So obviously the media knows this, but they're going to ignore it because they can get clicks by acting like everything he says is fact. But if you just took took a second and thought, okay. What did Donald Trump do before this? You know, he was, he had his show, The Apprentice, you know, he was businessman slash con man. Um, and he, he basically put on a show all the time. Like, that, that's who he is. So when he says these ridiculous things, like insinuating that he's not going to leave office, like this was before the election, he said if if he lost the election, he wasn't going to leave office. And everyone was like, oh my god, this is a, a fascist coup in action. It's like, no. If you sit there and actually think about it, he's not an idiot. He's not going to pout like a baby and get dragged out by the Secret Service. Like, that's it's not going to happen. But he knows by him saying that he's going to excite his more radical base, you could say, um, and anger those on the left that he doesn't like. You know, he, he just likes... He's a provocateur. That's... yeah. I think that's a good way of putting it. So the people who who take what he says at face value, for the media to do that, they do it because they know they can invoke people's emotions. But the your, your average Joe that hears that and just takes it at face value and doesn't comprehend that he's he's a clown. Like he's he's an exaggerated clown, and I think that was that was a big thing that your average person missed in a lot of the things he said. Like, you know, his rhetoric and, and all that type of stuff. Yeah, and I mean, uh, Eric Weinstein, uh, he had a very good way of putting this, is that most of what Trump says is a coin flip that lands on its side to where his base hears one thing and, you know, the left, the liberals, the Democrats, they hear another thing. And that's his MO. That's what he wants because, you know... He can get the left riled up and get them angry and screaming about whatever. And then he can get his base riled up and supporting him. But, you know, the media, especially the 
liberal media, CNN, MSNBC, New York Times, they've made a killing off of his presidency because, you know, I mean, I stopped watching CNN because it's every five minutes, Donald Trump this, Donald Trump that. And, I mean, there was actually a, it was one of the MSNBC executives said that if Donald Trump loses the election, their profits would go down 30% because, you know, media nowadays, instead of reporting news and truth and fact, they report clicks because their business model is to get viewers and the things that draw viewers is outrage, which is one of the big, big, big problems we have is like our sense-making institutions, like uh, journalism institutions, they, and, and the media, they, their incentives are to make money because they're businesses and it's what, um, eighty percent of media news companies are owned by the same six media corporations, which is <laughs> not a good thing to have, because you know journalism used to be a working class profession because they saw it as you know exercising their power against uh, you know institutions, the authoritarian government, the bureaucracy, yeah. um, and now it's become you know, sort of an elite, uh, upper class kind of, you know, you go to college, you get your degree, and you just, those kind of people are more, I mean, they're pretty out of touch with most Americans. Yeah, and like, instead of wanting to stick it to the establishment, now they want to stick with the establishment. And like what Christian was talking about with the, uh, the financial gains that media has gotten from Trump, um, to go back to Glenn Greenwald, um, on his Substack article, it's called, uh, No Matter the Liberal Metric Chosen, the Bush-Cheney administration was far worse than Trump. Um, I've not gotten a full read into this yet. I've skimmed it a little bit. But something he talks about is around 2015, media outlets were, were hurting. Um, they just... They weren't getting as much revenue as they used to. You know, it's kind of dying out. And then Trump came around and was kind of like this perfect opportunity for them to have limitless things to, to talk about. And actually, he quotes uh, CEO of uh, CBS in 2016, Les Moonves, I think that's how you pronounce it. But he said... in. Re- referencing Trump's election. He said, it may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS. Yeah. <laughs> Which kind of just shows, like, they're not too worried about aiding the sense-making of the American public. They're just worried about their next paycheck. Yeah, and, you know, the president of C- CNN, Jeff Zucker, I'm pretty sure his name is, he actually produced The Apprentice. Um, and he doesn't like Donald Trump. He's kind of had this vendetta against him. Um, and he kind of controls what CNN talks about, more or less. They do the staff call every morning where he leads. Um, so it's no surprise that they're so Trump-obsessed. But, you know, to be clear, we're not, you know, sticking up for the president um, in, in any term. Because, I mean, I think he's an existential threat to this country, and I'm glad that it looks like he'll be out of office. But... Not to say that he hasn't done some things right, um, and he has been treated somewhat unfairly, but 
you know, to put the other side of the coin, Joe Biden. <laughs> the fact that Joe Biden won this election basically without campaigning. I mean, he was pretty much in his basement the whole time, you know, made a couple <laughs> appearances, didn't really have any policy or ideology he was standing for other than, you know, Trump is bad and we need to, quote unquote, restore the soul of the nation, whatever that means. Um, I mean, this is the guy that, you know, people in response to the George Floyd incident started talking again about police reform. This guy wrote the 94 crime bill that introduced the death penalty for a hundred different crimes that, I mean, when he was there on the floor of the Senate trying to get it passed, he said, uh, I can't remember his exact words, but paraphrasing, it was something like, I don't care what led up to someone committing a crime. We need to get them off the street and throw them in jail. I don't care if they had a bad childhood. I don't care if they've been poor their whole life. We need to throw them in jail. Um, and he was, you know, saying how the Republicans were accusing the Democrats of being soft on crime, but all these crime bills were Democratic crime bills. He said it like 12 times. He was like, Democratic crime bill, Democratic crime bill. It's kind of funny. You want to look <laughs> up the video, it's all on YouTube. Um, but the idea that, you know, him and Kamala Harris, who, <laughs> as the DA of California, had, I mean, she's, she held evidence from going into court that would exonerate people so that she could throw them in jail. She upheld convictions of, it was, I think it was 1,500 nonviolent drug offenders, drug offenders, um, and bragged about it, laughed about it. Um, and I mean, famously in the debate, she tore Joe Biden apart. And then when asked about it by Stephen Colbert, she said, quote, it was a debate, <laughs> <laughs> which... I don't really know what that's supposed to mean. I mean, you were kind of calling him out on some tough shit. Yeah, it means she didn't know what to say, and she panicked, and yeah. It's the same thing when she does that laugh. Someone asks yeah. her a question, and she just laughs, because it's very obvious that she just doesn't know what to say and just doesn't want to embarrass well, herself. I almost think so that she was, you know, pulling back the curtain a little bit and showing how these debates are, I mean, they're fake. They're just trying to get sound bites. They're trying to get people riled up it's like yeah, yeah slate queen um but i mean also famously tulsi gabbard kind of kneecapped her bringing up all her her horrible record as the da of california uh i don't know if yeah, it was sorry attorney general i can't remember her exact position um if it was like state level or a district of california i'm pretty sure it was the california district attorney but um yeah and i mean the fact that this is who the Democrats decided to go with. Yeah, so she was district attorney of San Francisco 2004 to 2011. That's what it was. Thank you. Um, but yeah, and I, mean, I mean, also, you know, Joe Biden was one of the Iraq war backers, famously rounded up boats, which, I mean, I think most people realize that there was a grave mistake in the amount of money and lives that we've wasted in not only Iraq, but the other wars that, you know, Biden within the Obama administration, they took us from two conflicts in the Middle East to seven, you know, Syria, they dropped so many bombs in Syria that they literally ran out of bombs. The Air Force ran out of bombs. Um, you know, the, the, I mean, the response to the 2008 crisis by 
the Obama-Biden administration was also catastrophic, you know, giving trillions to the banks while kicking millions of Americans out, out of their homes. Like Steve Mnuchin, the current Treasury Secretary, was the CEO of a housing company, real estate company, and his company got subsidized a billion dollars to foreclose on Americans at the during the financial crisis, which was a policy by the Obama-Biden administration. Um, so the idea that, you know, Joe Biden is going to, you know, bring us out of this mess or solve any of our problems is frankly kind of ridiculous. I mean, out of the vast field that we had to pick from, of like well-qualified people, we chose Joe Biden, who's going to be inaugurated as the oldest president at 78, which, <laughs> I mean, do I have to say more than that? It's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, and on that, I mean, obviously, in terms of character and presentation and rhetoric and presidential demeanor, Joe Biden wins over Trump any day. Yes. That's very obvious. And in terms of a a leader, someone that people can look up to, yeah, like, it's going to be a lot better having Joe Biden instead of Mr. Trump. Um, But... I'm afraid that now that we have such a divisive character out of the office, people are going to not really pay attention to some of the stuff that happens behind the scene, like like what happened in the Obama administration, like how many people don't really know all of the drone strikes that he called, all the bombings, how many people don't know that his administration is the one that built the cages that everyone attributes to Trump, which you, you, and I believe you're referring to the cages that separating children from their parents. Yeah. And the ICE facilities. Immigrants. Um, that was a Obama administration policy that was started under Obama, um, that people seem to forget. <laughs> yeah. And of course, like Trump assuming, assumingly extended that. Yeah. And, if he really wanted to, he could have gotten rid of them, and he didn't. So yeah, no no excuses for him, but it was not started by him. Um, and like you kind of see this now, Joe Biden's message of unity, and all the the left leaning news organizations are sharing you know pictures or clips from his his speech from last night about this, and it's just kind of ironic coming from so obviously. He himself did not, at least not to my knowledge, I could be wrong, but did not necessarily demonize Trump supporters. But a large percentage of politicians and just citizens um, who are Democrats demonized an entire half of the country who supported Trump. So it's just kind of ironic to be calling for unity when the past four years have been nothing but the opposite obviously from both sides, but to just suddenly say, oh, now everything's going to be fine and we're going to be one country. It's just, I mean, even on on election day, you had some people sharing posts like, oh, no matter what happens, no matter who wins, we're still one country. Like, you know, we're all on the same team. And you had, to my knowledge, what I saw, people on the left saying, oh, you can't say that because... You can't equate them as the same thing because Trump's a fascist or Trump's Hitler, you know, that kind of stuff. And then now that 
Biden is the presumptive winner, um, you know, it's pretty much a done deal. Now that that's the case, and now that Joe Biden himself said, oh, we need to work on bringing everyone together, you know, focus on unity, now everyone's all about it, you know. They're like, oh, yeah, we're one country, you got to bring together. I mean, not everyone. I mean, you have, like, for one example, AOC on uh, November 6th, she sent out this tweet. Is anyone archiving these Trump psychophants for when they try to downplay or deny their complicity in the future? I foresee decent probability of many deleted tweets, writings, photos in the future. Which is kind of just a ridiculous thing for an elected official to say, you know, trying to, or basically calling for the documentation of every single person who either approved of Trump, worked for him, voted for him, him, whatever it may be. Yeah. And... You know, that's not really spreading the message of unity at all. And that is not how politics works. That's not how democracy works. That is not how... I mean... The, the, we seem to have lost in this country the recognition that you can disagree with someone on political views. But you... I mean, there's that famous... I think it's a quote by someone about free speech. Like, I may not... Have, agree with what you say, but I'll fight to the death to defend your right to say it. Um, we, we just become so partisan and so divided. I mean, and there's plenty, plenty of reasons for that. You know, social media is a big part of that. The incentives of news media is part of that. Um, I mean, undoubtedly, Trump is part of that because he hasn't... I mean, and other politicians, for sure, have not lended themselves to making things more unified and so one of the things we'll be talking about a few times which i want to like you know kind of collect some of the thoughts we've had the past few minutes um in my mind definitely i think you agree with me eric the republican and democratic parties are not that different from each other um the phrase duopoly is what a lot of people use and i i mean I think it's great because the they, they don't agree on everything, but the things they agree on are, you know, like the the idea that, well, first of all, the idea that Trump is a fascist is utterly ridiculous because if you go to any country that actually has fascist dictators or rulers, you, you, would, you would be begging to come back to the United States under Trump. I mean, there's just yeah, if no you survived. <laughs> yeah, like the idea, I mean, in, in some countries, if you say the wrong thing, You'll get picked up off the street and never get seen again. Like, if you're a homosexual, Even if you think you'll get stoned to death. Yeah. And, I mean, but the idea that Democrats have been spitting for four years, well, three years, that, you know, Trump's a fascist, he's in the pocket of Russia, he's an existential threat, yet, you know, the House of Representatives has what's called the power of the purse, meaning all spending by the federal government goes through. Congress. I mean, through the House of Representatives, which is controlled by Democrats. Nancy Pelosi is the House Speaker, and they voted to approve $178 billion more for the military budget every year to supposedly the most existential threat the United States has ever faced in its history, which, I mean, is utterly ridiculous. I mean, they also funded his border wall. Like, they, they agree on those kinds of things. I mean, both parties are essentially, I mean, they have their corporate interests that 
I mean, not the same ones. Like you have the, they each have the mega donors. Um, but, you know, the military industrial complex controls both of them, which is something we'll be talking a lot about. Um, and it's something that actually Dwight D. Eisenhower, as he was leaving office, his farewell address speech, he warned about it. Um, because at before World War II, we didn't have, um, we had military, but we didn't have like a full, a fully equipped standing army, more or less. Um, and he warned, again, paraphrasing, because I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but I mean, it's a great video. It's on YouTube. I would definitely suggest watching it. But he basically warned that, and he used the phrase military industrial complex. He said, be wary that, you know, their incentives to get profits will trump um, America's national interest, which is what happened because, I mean, the Afghanistan war, we spent $2 trillion. I mean, where did all that money go? It went to the weapon contractors, Boeing, Raytheon. And I mean, the Secretary of Defense currently, Mark Esper, used to work for Raytheon. And I mean, there's the, the whole revolving door thing. But I mean, the idea that the Democrats led this strong resistance, you know, Nancy Pelosi ripped up Trump's State of the Union address, you know, at the same time she was passing basically his entire agenda. You know, while we pointed out a lot of the negativities of the current president, the president-elect, and the vice president-elect, um, and the parties, I mean, I'm optimistic because I think there's no other time in the history of this country where people have free access to information through the internet and um, social media, which, I mean, has its problems, but it's kind of democratized information. And a well-informed electorate is essential to a functioning democracy. And while, you know, Biden isn't the best, I do think that he honestly wants the best for every citizen of this country. Um, he's just... I mean, he's been in politics for 47 years, so he's working within the system he knows, which, I mean, I think the system is the problem. Um, but I, I do think we do, we, we can stay optimistic because, I mean, we just have to pressure the administration to do things. Like always, you have to pressure your politicians to do things. Um, I'm going to give it to Eric to give his closing note, and then I'll do another closing note, um, and we'll end this episode. Yeah, so I just wanted to go through one last tweet that I shared. Um, this is from the author Michael Shermer. Uh, he has a podcast on YouTube. He has some some nice guests. I would check it out, but I just think this is it's very well put because you have such such polarization in our country, mostly led by the media institutions, which is unfortunate, but you know, it is what it is. But yeah, I'll just read this and then hand it over back to Christian. But he says no gloating, no catastrophizing. Trump is not Hitler. Biden is not Stalin. We did not live the last four years in tyranny. We are not heading for four years of socialism. Moderation is no vice. Extremis extremism is no virtue. Yeah, that's, that's very nice. Um, and I wanted to share, so Dave Chappelle hosted SNL, um, and I think it was at the end of the show. I can't remember if it was the beginning or the ending monologue. Um, but I just want to read a quote he said because I think it's just 
he just put it very well. Um, he said, I would implore everybody who is celebrating today to remember, it's good to be a humble winner. Remember when I was here four years ago? Remember how bad that felt? Remember that half the country right now still feels that way. Please remember that. Remember that for the first time in the history of America, the life expectancy of white people is dropping. Because of heroin, because of suicide, all these white people out there that feel that anguish, that pain, that are mad because they think nobody cares, and maybe they don't. Let me tell you something. I know how that feels. I promise you I know how that feels. If you're a police officer, and every time you put your uniform on, you feel like you've got a target on your back, you're appalled by the ingratitude that people have when you would risk your life to save them. Oh man, believe me. Believe me, I know how that feels. Everyone knows how that feels. But here's the difference between me and you. You guys hate each other for that, and I don't hate anybody. I just hate that feeling. That's what I fight through. That's what I suggest you fight through. You gotta find a way to live your life. You gotta find a way to forgive each other. You gotta find a way to find joy in your existence in spite of that feeling. And I think that's just, I mean, he spoke it from the heart. Um, and I just think, you know, the sun will rise tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Um, and we live in the greatest country on earth. And we should be proud of that and come together. And on that note, thank you for joining us for the inaugural episode of Twin Takes. And we hope to see you back here again. Thank you for joining us. Stay well, everyone.